Well, at this time, let's open our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 15, and we'll be reading the first 21 verses of Romans chapter 15. Let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall arise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the Gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the Gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom He was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, with God's help this evening, we're going to be thinking about a very important subject as we prepare to approach the Lord's table next Lord's Day evening. That subject is, in many ways, the heart and soul of the Christian life. And that is the importance of not only reading, but studying the Bible. We're told in verse 4, Paul writes, For whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now Paul is dealing here with a controversy in the church at Rome among the believers there, as we've said in our series on Romans, which this is extracurricular here, but we've said in our series so far in the early chapter of of Romans that 
there, there are many Jewish and Gentile believers in that church at Rome. And as we see in the New Testament, some of the Jewish Christians would continue during that intervening transitional period prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, many of these Jews would continue to worship at the temple and celebrate these divinely commanded Old Testament feasts, holy days, and observances of various kinds, including circumcision. The Gentiles were forbidden from adopting these practices, but there was a bit of a grace period for the Jewish believers. And so they were allowed to discontinue it, but there was a transitional period. Even the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts makes a vow at the temple and shaves his head. It's not always easy to piece together the full implications of this, but it seems that there's this transitional period where the old covenant ceremonies are fading away for the Gentile believers or for the Jewish believers, and they're not incorporated at all into the religious life of the Gentile believers. But this caused something of a controversy in the church at Rome. It appears that some of the Jewish believers are incorporating more or less, to more greater or lesser extent, some of these Old Testament festivals, and certainly the Gentiles are not touching them at all. And so you have different practices among the believers there, and different ideas, different opinions. Some are saying, look, Christ has come, it's over, we're moving on. Others are saying, well, we still have an attachment. And Paul is addressing this, and he's saying, yes, there's a transition here, uh, but there's a need for humility and patience among the believers. There's a need for them even to be self-sacrificial in avoiding things that are going to lead others to stumble into sin, that are going to be a problem for other people's consciences. And so there needs to be a mindset of self-denial for the good of the church. And in seeking to promote this sort of self-denial, Paul appeals to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Me. So he's saying the Lord Jesus Christ in His life prioritized the good of His neighbor, even the good of the brethren, over His own pleasure, His own preferences. And the point here is not to put the controversy over these festival days under a microscope. You get the gist of what he's saying here, and he's appealing to Christ as their example for self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of neighbor and brother and sister alike. But what's striking here is that in order to demonstrate the self-sacrificial example of Christ, the Apostle Paul appeals to a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 9. So, the quotation that I just read that Paul is citing, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And we see there the Lord Jesus Christ taking upon Himself our sin, our suffering, the reproaches, and all of these things. He's taking them on Himself for the good of His people. And that's an example for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ in a life of self-denial for the glory of God and for the good of others. But he's quoting it from Psalm 69, verse 9. Now, what in the world does Psalm 69 have to say about Christ? It was written in the Old Testament. Perhaps you've... uh, read this psalm before, certainly we've sung selections out of it, we've heard psalm meditations on it, but if you look at it at face value, at first glance, it may be difficult to see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly portrayed in Psalm 69. We're not going to go through it, but I think it's fair to say at first glance, you're not, as you're reading that maybe in your devotions or something, you're not immediately thinking, wow, there's the life and example and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, it's a bit of a puzzling citation that forces us, as we've probably, if you can recall, psalm meditations on this, we've delved into the, the depths of this insight into Psalm 69 as a picture of Christ accomplishing our salvation. But, but here's the point. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. That church has a variety of members in it. 
some Jewish, some Gentile, some having been saved for quite a while, others that are new converts. There's a broad variety as he's writing this epistle to the church at Rome, and he's expecting them to understand this citation. He's expecting them to understand that Psalm 69 speaks of Christ. He's expecting them to understand the way in which it speaks of Christ. He's expecting them to understand it so much that he's actually using it as a proof text to win their affections and to win their to persuade them to persuade them of the point that he's making. So he wouldn't appeal to a verse that for his audience in the early church would have been obscure and you know he would have appealed to something that would have sealed the deal in their minds. And so we can assume that the church at Rome had a sense of the Psalms, had a sense of what these Psalms point to, how they speak of Christ, how Christ speaks in them. And this is the, the, the clinching argument, as it were. Here's the example of Christ in Psalm 69, verse 9. Now, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table next Lord's Day evening, we're reminded that every time we come to the Lord's table, we are renewing our vows. We're renewing our profession of faith and purpose to believe everything the Bible says and to believe the Gospel and to do what the Bible calls us to do. To endeavor to forsake all sin, to seek to live a godly life, and to be a true servant of Jesus Christ and fulfill our duties. And one of those duties in our vows, vow 5, is the duty to diligently read the Bible. To diligently read the Bible. To search the Scriptures. Not just hear the sermons, but search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. To spend time in our daily lives immersing ourselves in the Bible. That's what the word diligent means. It's not just uh, like on my Bible app. I just noticed even today there's this new button. And if you push it, it gives you a special verse for the day. And I pushed it a few times, and there's some pretty special verses, to be honest with you. It was, it was edifying. But diligently reading the Bible doesn't mean pressing that little button with the stars on it, which it has stars on it, and you press it, and then you get the special verse for the day. That's not what it's talking about. It's not some kind of motivational verse generator that gives you something for the day. It's talking about diligently getting into the Scriptures. Reading the Bible, right? Not part of the Bible, not a verse of the Bible. The whole Bible. Doesn't mean you have to read it all at once or in one year. But over the course of your Christian life, you need to be imbibing and taking in the whole Bible and working your way through books of the Bible and reading through to try to understand for yourself what the Bible is teaching. Because... I wonder if Paul was around today and he made this type of application in many churches. I won't speak of our church because we have psalm meditation, so we have a bit of an advantage there. But in many churches, if, if he would make that application, it would just leave everybody puzzled. And the fact is, even in our church, it could be the case that many of us are renewing our vows at the Lord's table without really thinking about what we've promised to do. And... We say that we're going to diligently read the Bible and we might be just pushing that special button. Or maybe we're not even doing that and maybe the Bible is collecting dust. But really, if we're to be like the church at Rome, if we're to make sense of these kinds of things that the Apostle is saying, if we're going to grow in the Christian life, we need to be diligently reading the Bible. In fact, we need to be studying the Bible. That's what it means to diligently read it. Not just in one ear and out the other, but remembering what we've learned, building a working knowledge of the Bible in its original context. That may require you to use commentaries and listen to sermons and supplement the, the limited knowledge that you and I have with expert analysis and insights that we can judge according to the Bible. And we need to study the Bible. Every Christian needs to study the Bible. And so this evening, uh, we're just going to seek to refamiliarize ourselves with some of the reasons that we know as Christians we should be studying the Bible. This is why we took the vow. This is why when we come to the Lord's table, 
uh, we take delight to take God's covenant and His law upon our lips. And, and we know we should be studying the Bible. Deep down, if we're converted, we want to study the Bible, but we need to be reminded of some of the benefits of studying the Bible for ourselves. And in a sense, this sermon is directed to believers. I mean, we could start examining ourselves and saying, boy, if the Bible has been collecting dust on the shelf throughout most of my Christian life, do I even have a Christian life? We're not really going to go down that road tonight. We're going to focus on believers, born-again believers studying the Bible. What are the benefits that we're leaving on the table if we don't study our Bible? What are the things in our lives that are lacking because we're not studying the Bible? So every one of these benefits, there's nine of them. Who knows if we'll get to all of them. But there's nine out of the text this evening. And either this is what you are getting from the Bible or what you're missing if you're not studying the Bible. So let's begin with the first one. Significance. Significance. There are many people in the world today, most people are looking for significance, meaning. And of course, they do it in an idolatrous, humanistic way, self-esteem, self-love, these kinds of things. But the Bible offers us personal significance. And we can find significance not in ourselves, not in any kind of superiority, not in our own gifts or even in our own graces. But here is the significance that you have by way of studying the Bible. You have the significance of knowing, as Paul says here in verse 4, that whatever things were written before were written for you. That's what he's saying. The entire Bible was written for us. And that means particularizing it to yourself. It was written to you. It was written for you. For your instruction. For your learning for all kinds of things. But the Bible is a book that has been revealed by God and placed in your hands. He inspired it. He has preserved it. He's had it faithfully translated. He's given you all kinds of resources and helps. He's given you this book. He's given you His Holy Spirit to enable you to understand it and grow in your knowledge of it. God has written the Bible to you and for you. And that is significant, and that makes you significant. Not significant over against God, but significant in and through God, and because of God. Because God is significant, therefore His Word is significant, and if He's chosen to speak that Word to you and for you, and by His Spirit to apply it distinctly and intimately to the key areas of your life, then that makes you significant. It's not some kind of humanistic pep talk. I'm serious. It's significant. You're significant. You are a recipient of the Word of God. And we see this emphasized throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Moses says, For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? God has spoken to His people. He spoke to them in a unique way uh, at Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke. But He speaks to you with an even more powerful voice through His Word, speaking from heaven through the voice of His Word. And that's significant. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The Bible has been given to you. What's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly, that to them were given the oracles of God. Romans 3, 1 and following. This book belongs to you. It is your inheritance. It, it is what God has given to you when He saved you. He places this book in your hands and says this is yours. And there's nothing more valuable or noble or significant than this book or than being the recipient of this glorious book. The Bible gushes about this privilege. 
Psalm 147, verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and its judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. This privilege, this significance has been placed in our hands. And not only do we have his law, not only do we have the Old Testament, but notice what Jesus says about his disciples receiving his own preaching and teaching and his own parables. He says, Matthew 13, verse 11 because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. If you're a believer, you are spiritual. We saw this morning. The natural man can't make any sense of this book, but you are spiritual. You have the Holy Spirit. You can read it, understand it, grow from it, gain knowledge and insight, apply it, and produce spiritual fruit in your life by God's power. The Muslims refer to us and to the Jews as people of the book. And we ought to be people of the book. Not just pastors. But Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And if you're one of my disciples indeed, you will abide in my word. He doesn't say if you're a minister or an elder or a theological professor. He says if you're a disciple, a true disciple, you will be in his word, you will be abiding in in that word. And the epistles of the New Testament, for the most part, are written not only to the leadership of the church, but to the membership of the church. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So not just the church officers, But the saints, all the saints, are to receive the epistle to the Philippians. And though Jesus in Revelation writes to the messengers or angels of the churches, nevertheless at the end it says this is what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to the body of Christ, to the members of the church throughout the world. And so this is significant. These epistles, these books of the Bible have been written to you and for you And you ought not to take that lightly. And if you're finding that you're discouraged and you think your life is meaningless and you get up in the morning and you're not you're just not sure is there anything noble or meaningful that I'm gonna do today, it 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 could that could be a symptom of the fact that you're not in your Bible. If you were, you might get up in the morning and say, I have an opportunity to read and study the living and active word of God. What a significance. Secondly, instruction. Instruction. We see in verse 4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Otherwise translated, our instruction. The word here means teaching. That we would be taught. That we would be instructed. That we would learn. He goes on to say that because of this learning and teaching, verse 14, that these Christians are full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge. So they're being taught They're teachable, they're being taught, they're learning, they're gaining all kinds of biblical knowledge such that they understand Psalm 69. And they understand this book of Romans, which is in some ways a very challenging book, but but they're up to the challenge because they're being instructed by the Word of God. Now, we as Reformed Christians affirm many things about the Bible. We say that we believe in sola scriptura, That the Bible alone is our infallible rule for faith and life. Sola Scriptura. That the Bible is exclusively God's special revelation to the church today. We don't find any other infallible rule for our doctrine, for our life, outside the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. We believe in Tota Scriptura. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, has relevance for defining Biblical doctrine, biblical worship, so on and so forth. Biblical ethics. So it's only Scripture and it's all of Scripture. And we believe in the full sufficiency of Scripture. That it gives us all that we need for life and godliness. It equips us for every good work. There's nothing significant that's necessary for the Christian life, for pleasing God, or for 
getting to heaven, finding salvation that's outside the Bible. It has everything we need. It equips us for every good thing God calls us to do. So as Reformed Christians, we understand that this book and the study of this book yields instruction. And when we evangelize people, we use the Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. Our catechism says that uh, one of the chief ways that God converts people is through the preaching of the Word. Even also through the reading of the Word. The Word of God is central to our regeneration the whole way through the Christian life. It's only the Word. It's all of the Word. The Word is fully sufficient. So on and so forth. We affirm these things. If anybody denied these things, we would immediately be uncomfortable because we affirm these things. But my friends, what sense does it make to affirm those things and not read and study the Bible? What sense does it make to go out and evangelize the lost and say, you need to hear the Word of God. Here's a Gospel of John. And they say to you, oh, Um, have you read this lately? Do you read the Bible? Well, no, but you should read the Bible. Here's a Bible that I have to give. In fact, you can have mine because I don't read it anyway. You see the nonsense. But this is how sin is. We're inconsistent. We're sinners. I'm not here to throw stones. I'm just saying uh, we need to stop and take a step back and think about how ridiculous it is for a Reformed Christian believing what we believe about the Bible, that it's so necessary to equip us for every single thing that means anything in the Christian life. It's so necessary, and it's necessary to know the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation. How much of your Bible do you read? I mean, if you heard a dispensationalist say, well, we should be New Testament Christians, you'd you'd be up in arms. You'd say, hey, you need the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. How much of the Bible have you read in the last year, two years, five years? You know, the the New Testament Christian, the dispensationalist, in many cases, reads his Bible, even though he's got a theological problem there. He actually reads the Bible more in many cases than the Reformed Christian who says, Toda Scriptura. But how much of it are you actually reading and studying? Well, not as much as I should. And and really, that can even be a a cop-out to hide the fact that it's so abysmal. It's so far worse. It's not just... Not as much as I should, but it's woefully inadequate. And, and how are we going to live the Christian life if we don't have the Bible? If the Bible equips us for every good work, how are we going to do good works if we're not taking in the Bible every single day? Psalm 19.12 says, Cleanse me from secret faults. Do you believe you have sins that you're not aware of, that you need to repent of, and those sins are displeasing in God's sight? Those sins have a negative impact on those around you. Those sins are causing problems in your own life. Do you believe that? We'd all say, oh yes, I believe that. Well, how are you going to uncover those hidden sins and find out where they're at and repent of them so that you're no longer causing people to stumble and ruining your life and displeasing God? I mean, how are you going to do that if you're not in the Word of God on a regular basis? It's not going to happen. And again, we know the logical argument, we all agree, but then for some reason, we just don't follow through. But we need to follow through. Because the Bible tells us everything that's so important. It tells us who God is. If we don't read it, we're going to forget who God is. If we don't study it, we're going to forget what God requires of us. We're going to forget what God in the person of Christ has done for us. The person and work of Christ for salvation. We're going to forget how the Bible actually defines marriage for us and equips us for all the good works of being faithful in marriage, in our family, parenting our children, serving in the church as a member, as an officer. The Bible equips us to be faithful members of society, citizens, voters, civil magistrates. It it equips us to have insight to understand the times, to have a sense of, okay, What is God doing in the world? How do I make sense of what's happening in the news with what's happening in my country or in my community? It gives us insight to understand the times to know what Israel ought to do, as the Bible says. It shows us biblical prophecy. It gives us wisdom in terms of what to anticipate in history and as we await the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it reminds us of the second coming of Christ. Lest we forget lest we forget that everything ultimately is going to come to fruition 
and culmination at that last great day. We ought to be looking to that and desiring to hasten the day. The Bible tells us about sin and Satan and the world and how to overcome our spiritual foes. It tells us about heaven and hell. It's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. If we don't read it every day, not just read it, but I'm saying study it, understand it, don't let it intimidate you, take it one chunk at a time, but consistently, diligently make it the bedrock of your schedule because if you don't, you're going to be stumbling in the darkness. And I know you believe that, but you have to act on that, right? Nobody here, I, I don't know, I'm not saying everybody here is, uh, is, is saved or whatever. I doubt anyone would raise their hand if I said, who denies that the Bible is a lamp for our feet? Probably very few people would raise their hand. And yet, do we treat it that way as so necessary for every step that we take? Thirdly, endurance. Endurance. The patience and comfort of the Scriptures. That word patience could be translated endurance, perseverance, stamina. The patient endurance of the Scriptures. In other words, the patient endurance which knowing and studying the Scriptures produces in our lives. How do we persevere? How did the saints persevere? We look in the book of Revelation. It it was by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, loving not their lives unto death. It's through the Gospel. It's through the Word. Through the Scriptures. It gives us patient endurance. And one passage that I think is helpful in this regard when when we think of the relationship between God's Word and our own ability to continue to persist, to persevere in the midst of a tiresome and weary life. Now, we have an easy life compared to the people in Myanmar, believe me, but we get tired. We get overwhelmed. And Psalm, excuse me, uh, Isaiah 50 verse 4, a prophecy of Christ says this, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. This is Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So this is the sinless Son of God. This is a a presentation of Christ in His earthly life and ministry. Jesus is getting up every morning. Morning by morning, He's in the Word. He's in the Word and He's in the Spirit and He is studying and imbibing and receiving and meditating upon the Scriptures. And He's saying that it enables Him then, as our great prophet, to have the tongue of the learned, to speak a word in season to Him who is weary. Now my friends, that's not only something Jesus did in His earthly life. That's what He's doing right now as He's interceding for us. He is speaking to each one of us a word in season. I can guarantee you that every day you open your Bible, and I'm saying you're diligently, you know, not just hitting the, app, the button on the app or whatever. That might even work sometimes. But, but you're diligently reading and studying the Bible. Okay, He will speak to you through the Scriptures. If you prayerfully come to the Bible and you give yourself to it, and in faith you study it and cling to it, what's it telling me about God? What's it telling me about His law, about His Gospel? He will feed you. Christ will speak to you, certainly more often than not, but I would say more regularly, even if not every time, a word in season when you're weary. So if you're weary and you're trying to figure out why, could it be that you're not in the Word? Could it be that Jesus has words of comfort and strength and endurance to speak to you in your weariness? The problem is that you've, you've shut Him up. You've shut the Bible and you've put it on the shelf and He's not speaking to you because you've hit the mute button by not opening the Bible and studying it. He speaks a word in season to those who are weary. When God, in the book of Deuteronomy, through Moses, spoke about Israel's king, the king that would eventually come. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. Also it shall be when He sits on the throne of His kingdom, 
that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So in order for this king to be humble and be obedient to the Word of God and persevere and endure to the end so that he wouldn't turn aside and apostatize and fall away from God's Word, from His commandments. God says he needs to have a copy of the law and read it every day of his life. So he's saying read it every single day, read it every single day throughout every year of your life. And that will equip and enable you. That will prolong your days in your kingdom. That will make you persevere to the end. In fact, as you take in that Word and you pass it along to your children, it will cause you and your children to be prolonged in the midst of Israel. So this Word, studying the Bible, is integral. It's necessary. It's vital if we and our children are going to endure. The backslider in heart is filled with his own ways, the Bible says. The persevering saint is filled with the Scriptures and with the Word of Christ dwelling in him richly. And it enables you to persevere in areas of your life where you may be tempted to give up. Areas of your life, maybe in evangelism, you're discouraged. Maybe in your Christian life, maybe in your prayer life. You need Scripture passages to remind you of God's goodness and His faithfulness. Maybe in marriage. Maybe in parenting. Maybe in raising your children. Maybe in church leadership or church ministry or or whatever it is in your life. You need the Word to endure to the end. Fourthly, comfort. The patience and comfort of the Scriptures. Now, What is the source of our endurance? How is it that the Word of God enables us to endure? It's through comfort. It's through comfort. Strengthening us. Strengthening our hearts. Giving us the the truth of God in our souls. Something that is rock solid to cling to. Something that is reliable and certain in the midst of uncertainty. Something that encourages us in the midst of discouragement. The Lord enables us to endure by way of the comfort of the Scriptures. And you can see this plainly in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, which opens in in a familiar way. Comfort. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. It goes on to prophesy the ministry of John the Baptist. Some of us say, well, that's not very comforting. But John the Baptist brought the truth of the Gospel, convicted people of sin, and said, here's the Lamb of God that takes away your sins. That's as comforting as it gets. Uh, uh, Isaiah 40, which says, behold your God. And it begins to speak of Him as a loving shepherd, holding His sheep and, and loving them. It speaks of Him as a great and glorious God before whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket. It comforts the people of God with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of Christ, and with an understanding of the promises and the faithfulness of God. So you come to the end of the chapter, verse 27, and Israel is discouraged. Israel is lacking comfort. My way is hidden from the Lord. And my just claim is passed over by my God. Listen how the Word of God here comforts the people of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It strengthens us by pointing us to the strength of our almighty faithful God. He gives power to the weak 
And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Not only that, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Comforting words. And there are no shortage of circumstances in our lives that cause us to need comfort. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, people are mourning the loss of fellow believers that have died and they're not quite up to speed on the biblical doctrine of the resurrection from the dead at the second coming and these kinds of things. And so the Apostle Paul explains to them that Jesus is coming back. He's going to raise their beloved loved ones in the Lord, raise them from the dead at the last day, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. And he says then, take these statements and speak to one another and be comforted by these words. Be comforted, he says, by these words. And we're not going to receive comfort if we're not receiving these words. And so again, if, if you're discouraged, if you're weak and weary, if you're comfortless and dejected, could it be the case that this is a benefit you've left on the table and you need to take it back and you need to get in the Word? Fifthly, hope. The patience and the comfort of the Scriptures that you might have hope. Hope is faith directed toward the future. Confidence in what God Himself has promised to do. And it's a hope that's produced by the Scriptures. How do we know what God has promised to do? We need to get it back in that Bible and read about the God of hope, the God who produces hope, the God who makes promises and does not leave His people ashamed. Now, if you're a believer in the church at Rome and you look at your society, here you are in the Roman Empire, you're in the capital city, and who's the emperor? Nero. This blasphemous, perverse tyrant who persecutes Christians and demands worship as a god. This is a real tyrant. It's far beyond anything that we've experienced. And are they discouraged? Probably tempted to be discouraged. But Paul says, open up your Bible. These things were written so that you, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, would have hope confidence in what God has promised to do. So you look at verses 8-13, through and he's speaking about God's faithfulness. He's going to save many Jews through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. But then he says even the Gentiles, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So he's saying the Gentiles, that, that word there is nations. Nations. It's not just a collection of individual people that aren't Jewish. It's nations. He's saying so that the nations of this world that right now are under darkness and tyranny and blasphemy and perversion and really anything you can point out in our society, in our government, in in this wicked culture, that there was something of that in their culture, probably far worse. Okay? And, And Paul is saying, don't be hopeless. He's saying, read the Psalms. He quotes a bunch of Psalms. I mean, in some sense, as psalm singers, how could we possibly be without hope? I mean, we sing the Psalms. Even in the passages where it talks about human depravity, it ends with, oh, and God's going to gain the victory. So he, he quotes all these Psalms pointing to what God will do in establishing His kingdom and His worship throughout all the nations through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He imparts hope. And perhaps these Roman believers are discouraged because of some of the false teachers that are arising among them. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple." And you could be discouraged about the church, about the the woeful inadequacy oftentimes of the church's witness in the world and its doctrinal unfaithfulness gets you down. Paul is saying, 
yeah, these things are the case. These things are happening. These discouragements, these false teachers and heretics and selfish megalomaniacs going around the countryside, uh, religious leaders and so on. But verse 20, the God of peace will crush Satan. It's Satan behind these people. And Jesus is going to crush Satan. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Not only that, you can go to Romans 8. He talks about the hope, the yearning of the creation for the revelation of the sons of God at the last day when all creation will be renewed. Christ returns, resurrects His people, and the new heaven, the new earth, so we shall ever be with the Lord, that eternal weight of glory. We could go on and on. Paul gives them countless reasons for hope through the Scriptures in the epistle to the Romans. And my friends, we need hope. We need hope. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12 says that if we don't have hope, if we don't have the assurance of what God will do in this life and the world to come, if we're not fixating upon God's faithfulness in times to come, we will be sluggish in our Christian life. We will be sluggish. So we need hope and we need it from God's Word. In addition... There are a number of things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expedite this. I'm sure you could have imagined nine benefits. There's no way we're going to get through all those. But some of the other benefits here, unity, unity. Notice the whole point of this passage is that people would be self-sacrificial for the good and unity of the church. And he goes on in verse 5, the God of peace Uh, or patience and comfort, grant you to be like-minded toward one another. He goes on that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. Listen, you're not going to be united with your brethren if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not studying it together, sharpening each other. If you're not reading the Bible and having God's will and God's truth written upon your heart and mind, then what is the basis going to be for your unity with the other members of the church? I mean, I suppose we could just be some kind of monolithic, uh, homogenous church where everybody's of the same background and maybe we're the homeschool church or we're the the politics church or the country club church or, uh, you know, the the, the soup kitchen church. I don't know. But we have something other than Christ and His truth at the center of it all and somehow um, we find unity through these different causes or demographical things. But no, our unity, if we're going to be a real church with different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, the only unity that gives us a fighting chance to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is that we have one mind and speak with one mouth by way of God's Word. That that God puts His Word inside of us and though we're different and we speak differently and we have different preferences and different backgrounds, all these things, yet we're united with the mind of Christ speaking the truth of Christ, and that's something that the world around us might just find uh, unique or interesting. Just maybe. But a unity that's based upon the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one God, one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Gospel. Unity. There's so much more. I'm just going to end with number seven here. Fullness. We'll just end with this. Fullness. This, I think, in some ways, is the most important. Do you feel empty in your Christian life? Do you feel that your Christian life just is not robust? It's lagging? The the peace, the joy, the zeal that you had at one point in your life just isn't there? You're struggling? You're running on empty? Listen to what Paul says that the Word of God will produce in your life. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, faith, believing, hope, power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, uh, verse 14, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able, that is, powerful also to admonish one another. So, filled with joy, peace, faith, hope, power, goodness, knowledge. My friends, we cannot be settling in complacency 
with a lackluster Christian life. We should desire as believers to be filled with the Spirit. Not filled with greed, filled with ambition, filled with wine, but filled with the Spirit. Letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We shouldn't be content with just a smidgen of joy, a little bit of peace, a dash of faith and hope and power. We need the whole thing. We need power. If we're going to overcome that besetting sin, we need to be in the Word and the Word needs to be in us so that we are mighty to pull down strongholds. To trample the serpent underfoot. We can't continue to run on empty. We need to be filling our tanks every single day. Giving ourselves something to meditate upon every single day. As I said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the more that you study the Word, the more you're going to find Christ everywhere. Not just in the Gospels, you're going to find Him in the Psalms, in Isaiah, you're going to find Him in Genesis through Revelation. The Word of Christ will dwell in you richly. And just let me close with this word from the Lord Jesus Christ. John 15, verse 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you. And we can generalize that for everything He's given us in the Bible. This is the Word of Christ. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Are you lacking joy? I'm not saying it's some kind of automatic mechanical thing. Open your Bible and whoa, you're feeling good today. That's not how it works. That's not how it works for me. Uh, If that's how it works for you, let's talk. But that's not how it works. But it's a consistent, sustained investment in the Word of God. And it gradually fills your tank. It fills your heart with joy, with the graces of the Holy Spirit. Increasing your faith, your hope for the future, your power, your willpower against sin. Day after day as you fill yourself with who God is and who Christ is and what God's done through Christ and what God requires and why it's so smart to do what God says and so stupid to do what we think we should be doing. As you fill your mind with those things, my friend, you will find yourself fulfilled and joyful and peaceful and a blessing to those around you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, teach us to labor not for the bread which perishes, but for that bread of life, bread of heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, that we may be filled unto eternal life, that we may be filled with all the spiritual blessings that You have given to us in Christ. Please stir us up to take hold of Your Word, to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it day and night, that we would love the Word of God and fall more deeply in love with the God of the Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.